0: 优优独播剧场优优独播剧场 ——YoYo Television Series Exclusive It's still uncanny to me the sheer number of movies in the superhero genre, brilliant, abysmal, and everything in between, that have released since I started the series almost a decade ago. In 2009, Dark Knight and Iron Man were only a year old. Batman 89 was celebrating its 20th anniversary, live-action superhero TV shows with costumes weren't being produced, Batman was the only from-the-ground-up superhero reboot we'd really seen so far, and the notion of a shared universe was still novel and unproven. I was devoting my critiques to an extremely niche and limited category, and I thought I'd run out of movies in a couple years." There were few enough films in the genre. I called it a subgenre, and even with the envelope pushing efforts that had broken new ground, in proving the validity of movies about guys in costumes fighting crime as thoughtful and meaningful stories for sophisticated audiences, i couldn't imagine in my wildest dreams these movies were about to become the most profitable commodity in Hollywood. That we'd go from the few superhero films with A-list casting to give them credibility, like Brando in Superman or Ian McKellen in X-Men, to showing up in one of these things becoming almost an obligatory feather in their caps. We stunt cast these movies constantly, with big stars from the previous generation, while we homage their most well-known work, like Robert Redford in Captain America the Winter Soldier. And for up-and-coming actors like Chadwick Boseman or Gal Gadot, there's no longer that George Reeves fear of typecasting. Signing on to one of these juggernaut franchises, if they're successful, is often job security now and a resume for later. We've gone from wondering if you'd work again after putting on a cape to saying now I've made it as you donned your first set of tights. Sometimes literally. I didn't think I'd see that either. One superhero role is the proving ground for another, like Chris Evans going from Johnny Storm to Steve Rogers or Ben Affleck going from Matt Murdock to Bruce Wayne. Superhero movies run on internet time now. I could write a pretty hefty book on the history of superhero films before 2009, but I could write a series of encyclopedias on everything that's come after. Just think, Chris Evans was cast just after the first few episodes of Superhero Rewind, now he's about to retire. We've lived through the end of one Batman franchise, the start of another, and we're probably about to see a third. We've seen Guardians of the Galaxy move from obscurity to phenomenon overnight. We've seen another whole trilogy of X-Men movies and Hugh Jackman retire Wolverine with a film a few would deny as a transcendent masterpiece. Who would have predicted that after X-Men Origins, one of the most embarrassing prequels ever made? Who could have predicted that Deadpool would become arguably more popular than X-Men, much less that Ryan Reynolds could convince Fox to bankroll it, much less even that we'd ever see a world where mainstream audiences actually knew anything about the character outside of memes? And I almost can't imagine a world now without the baffling experience that was Batman v Superman any more than I can imagine life without my children. That was an unfortunate comparison, and I apologize to my kids profusely. I once worried I'd run out of movies to review. Now I worry I'll be doing this into my 60s and I won't be done, even if this train finally runs out of track in a decade or two. The last near decade feels like two or three to me and there have been so many brilliant and memorable performances in that time. And while there were several stellar efforts before that, there's been so much history since then. I only had like 30% of today's catalog to choose from when I first did a top 50 actors list back in 2011. Now that one was a little different. I counted down what I thought were the best casting choices, the actors that best represented the characters they played based on the source material. I had to stretch for that list. There are choices there I would never think to make now, and I had to include television performances just to get to 50. Today, it's a lot easier to fill a top 50 list and a lot harder to include everyone who should be here. Honestly, wouldn't be tough to go all the way to 100. I considered just updating the previous list, but it would be pretty arbitrary to do it now and include both Marvel, the DCEU, and television. These days, casting is rarely the problem anymore when these things take a nosedive. So instead, I'm going to count down the 50 performances in superhero movies that most stand out to me. There are a lot of amazing vocal performances in the animation, of course. Kevin Conroy in Batman, Mask of the Phantasm, Michael Emerson in The Dark Knight Returns. There are even a few that aren't in Batman movies, but I wanted to focus on live performances rather than comparing them to voiceover work, and if you lumped movies in with TV, there's another great top 50 list there. It's crazy to think of a great performances list for superhero properties on screen and not include TV efforts like Michael Rosenbaum as Lex Luthor on Smallville, Vincent D'Onofrio as Wilson Fisk in Daredevil, and Matt Ryan as John Constantine. But there's so much excellent material to grab from now, that absolutely deserves to be its own list, and I have every intention of doing one down the line. So here are the rules for this list. I'm only looking at big-screen, live-action movies that fall into the superhero category, which, as we've spent a lot of time over the years discussing, can be debatable. There's at least one character here some of you won't think should count if you don't think of it as coming from a superhero film, although we won't get to that one until next video. Hopefully that's not giving too much away. It can be from a property based on pre-existing material or a totally original story from any era. Any and all characters count, be they hero, villain, butler, love interest, ally, or goon. Though I don't think I included any of those. Sorry, Bob. I'm looking at specific performances, not casting choices. So if I picked Michael Goff as Alfred, for instance, it wouldn't be for his entire body of work as the character, it would be for one film, like an award show. And sorry, Michael Goff, rest in peace, I love you, but you didn't quite make the list. Because this is all about performances, the same character may appear multiple times. But because there are only 50 spots and so many to choose from, I am limiting the number of times an actor can appear to one. Everybody got it? Okay, here goes. My top 50 most memorable great performances in superhero movies, up through October of 2018. I've got to remind listeners in the future when this was made, since it'll be out of date and rendered less relevant faster than The Amazing Spider-Man 2. And here we go. Number 50, John Liguizamo as Clown from Spawn. Yes, it's an ultra-Hollywooded attempt at turning Spawn into a family film, and while also trying to look edgy, and while it's less convoluted than the source material, it's still kind of a mess. But that doesn't stop John Luizamo from giving it his all and totally transforming into a grotesque, squat, vile demon who himself transforms into the Violator, a gigantic, horrifying monster with a huge lower jaw. I can't imagine this character played more authentically or another actor more dedicated. Luizamo goes through hell to become a clown, having to constantly crouch in an extremely uncomfortable costume, and he makes it look effortless. Whether you think this gross comic relief character is funny or nauseating, Liguizamo's enthusiasm for the part is infectious, and it's hard not to enjoy watching someone else having the time of his life, even if I don't like the guy he's playing. I don't care for a lot of the bathroom humor, and some of his jokes are a little generic, but when the comedy doesn't work, it's never the fault of the acting. I know what it's like to fully commit to that mediocre to bad material, having devoted two years of my life to reviewing Spawn comics, and I feel like Luizamo is practically a kindred spirit. I don't know why he sunk his heart and soul into such mind-numbing material, but he certainly elevated it, and that earns him a spot on my list. number forty-nine. Elias Koteas as Casey Jones in the 1990 Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. I can't imagine the original Ninja Turtles without Casey Jones, and that has a lot to do with Kataeus' spunky and natural performance. He's not only the perfect casting choice for Casey physically based on the comics, but he's essential in helping to define the Turtles themselves, at least two of them, Raph and Donnie, and in making the animatronics feel like real flesh-and-blood characters with some depth to them. He and Judith Hogue both treat the Turtles like human co-stars. I mean, there are humans in the suits, but a lot of her performance is in programmed mouth movements and voiceover. The human actors are never tongue-in-cheek about it. Hogue and Paige Turco are both good Aprils, but I can't imagine anyone else playing Casey. Delivering the banter with Raphael, trying to hide his insecurities, giving everyone offensive nicknames like Sawyer in Lost, and playing the conceited chauvinist macho man when he's really just a good guy with a temper who wants to help people and goes too far. You can tell there's a human being behind that gruff and overbearing exterior from the very beginning. As bad as Three is, he's one of the few saving graces there. It's like he was born to play that role as much as Shatner was born to play Kirk. Number 48, Willem Dafoe as Norman Osborn and the Green Goblin in Sam Raimi's first Spider-Man film. So Norman was a billionaire scientist who never had time for his son. But something went screwy and before you knew he was trying to kill everyone. When a villain's character can be so easily summed up with two lines and a Weird out parody and not miss too much, you know he doesn't have a lot of dimension. But a bad guy doesn't need to be super complex or even have fully clear intentions for his performance to be insanely entertaining. Willem Dafoe is eight shades of creepy, and he has so much fun in the role. Norman loses his mind well before the end of the first act, and like most of the Rainy villains, he's a guy whose mind is compromised and who isn't fully responsible for his actions. And he accomplishes what he sets out to do minutes after suiting up and jumping on his goblin glider for the first time when he gets revenge on his company's board. He then spends the rest of the movie trying to, uh, create chaos and act like a raving ding-dong. I don't love Defoe for the humanity he brings to the role, though there's certainly some real tragedy and anguish in Norman's personality the few times he breaks through past the goblin persona. I love him for the sheer maniacal gold he mines throughout the film. Other actors can play Norman Osborn, but I think Defoe does the perfect goblin. It's hilarious, but it's also sufficiently menacing, and unlike anything I've seen before or since. And the way Defoe goes between the sniveling Norman persona and the goblin in his study as he schizophrenically looks into the mirror is brilliant. It's like Weird Al said, he's wearing that dumb Power Rangers mask, but he's scarier without it on. Out am I! Number 47, Danny DeVito as Oswald Cobblepot and the Penguin in Batman Returns. Another villain who has motivation issues, The Batman Returns Penguin is not the definitive version. He's not likable, he's not as tragic and sympathetic as he's played up to be, and he's almost as disgusting as Liguizamo’s clown. But like that performance, it's undeniably memorable and effective, and DeVito throws himself into that character so hard, he completely transforms into this hideous monster who wants the world to think he's misunderstood and then rip it apart into tiny pieces. Batman Returns is about imagery and elemental notions before it's about a story. And the Penguin is the epitome of an interesting performance over an interesting character. He gave me nightmares as a child, and so he did his job. This Penguin is a mirror of the monster Bruce Wayne projects to the world to be an effective crime fighter, and perhaps of the madman he buries deep within himself. Although in Batman Returns, maybe not that deep. I never find Cobblepot laugh-out-loud funny like Nicholson's Joker can be, and that's on some less-than-inspired writing. But he's meant to be disturbing and bizarre, and he does that extremely well. There are moments, like when he bites a man's nose, that will stay with me forever, for better or worse. This one makes the list not for entertainment value or because I love the take on the material so much as DeVito's commitment. Number 46, Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn in Suicide Squad. The movie might have been all over the place, and I might not like the soulmate direction it chose to take Joker and Harley, but Robbie is absolutely captivating and a lot of fun in the role. She had a lot to do with that movie's success, despite its uneven and sometimes incoherent story and some truly bizarre and counterintuitive editing choices. Robbie brings the madness, the joy brokenness and the cuteness fans of the character craved. She would also belong on a Best Casting Choices list, but she's not here just because she's the right pick based on the source material. There are a lot of layers and some nuance Robbie brings to the role that's maybe not on the page. I love the brief flashes of sadness that break through her practice zaniness. The story doesn't earn that pathos, but Robbie certainly does. Her chemistry with Leto doesn't really do anything for me, but her dynamic with Will Smith does, and I'm impressed she won me over with her screen presence enough that I was okay with Harley Quinn as co-captain of the Suicide Squad along with Deadshot. It's no wonder Warners keeps announcing movies with her. Wonder how many of those actually get made. I just hope whatever she actually ends up in has a story to match her performance. Number 45, Ding DeHaan as Andrew in Chronicle. DeHaan's portrayal of an unhinged teenager who lashes out at the world for not accepting him is powerful and terrifying. He manages to play disturbing but sympathetic throughout, even when he's completely lost it. When he becomes super talented with his frightening new powers and isn't emotionally mature enough to handle them. It's the most vulnerable time in most people's lives as we struggle to find ourselves while wanting to be understood and appreciated before we fully get who we are and what we want. And Dahan does a wonderful job of embodying that frustration, impatience, and desperation. Not everyone will agree with this pick. Some people find Andrew a typical angsty, whiny teenager, but I think there's more to him than that. His angst is understandable, with his abusive home life and his lack of guidance or friends, until he and the other two boys find that glowing space- Orb thing. The Han doesn't play Andrew as heroic or endearing. We aren't supposed to cheer his antisocial behavior. We're supposed to want to see him take his many opportunities to change for the better and be devastated when he gives in to the madness, which I absolutely was. The Han's performance is wonderfully heartbreaking. 44. Val Kilmer as Bruce Wayne and Batman in Batman Forever. It's been said that Michael Keaton played the best Batman, but Val Kilmer played the best Bruce Wayne. I think I agree with that. Batman Forever might be a pretty by-the-numbers superhero movie, and it doesn't take itself as seriously as a lot of fans wished it had, particularly with its villains. But Kilmer plays it totally straight, even when he tells Alfred, I'll get drive-thru, though the goofy grin in the bat suit after Chase rejects Batman for Bruce Wayne is a bit much. Kilmer's Bruce is serious and stoic like Keaton's, but there's a constant sadness behind that exterior that drives him. Kilmer is playing a more complex man than the script explores. Some of this is admittedly due to Schumacher's new story approach, but there's a real humanity to Kilmer's Bruce that wasn't there before. He plays distant but caring really well and has an ability to speak in an almost soothing monotone without losing any energy or screen presence. He plays Bruce and Batman exactly the same, which is maybe why he's not as good in the Batsuit as Keaton and it makes it harder to buy that nobody can tell they're the same guy especially considering how public this Batman is. But it's an interesting interpretation, the Bruce Wayne who is always Batman, or the Batman who is always Bruce Wayne, and can't even try to hide it because he remains in perpetual shock after the death of his parents. I've always wished we could have seen Kilmer play the role in a movie with a more sophisticated script. If Schumacher had been allowed to make the year one movie he wanted to, Kilmer might have still been the right guy. Number 43, Alfred Molina as Otto Octavius and Dr. Octopus in Spider-Man 2. Spider-Man 2's story doesn't hold up for me as well as it used to, but Melina's performance remains a standout, and not for the wild and crazy reasons Defoe makes the list. Melina's Octavius is genuinely likable and well-meaning, the kind of mentor every student hopes to have in college, and Melina plays him, at first, as the wise and responsible man Peter would want to grow up to be, a man who wants to use power for the greater good and not just for his own selfish ends. He means well, but he's trying to manipulate forces beyond his control both the power source he's created, the power of the sun in the palm of his hand, and the AI in the octopus arms, Melina shows real range, playing a more two-dimensional, almost cartoon nefarious version like the generically narcissistic mad scientist from the comics when the arms take over, with flashes of the grief-stricken, tortured man whose ear they keep whispering into to control him after the unfortunately placed inhibitor chip is destroyed. Doc Ock is important to superhero film because it's one of the first times a big-screen comic book villain was truly sympathetic, and not just straight-up evil or ostensibly human, but without any real substance and Melina brings that to life with both charm and tragedy. Despite my issue with the inconsistency of the privilege line in the third act I brought up when I reviewed this movie, the way Melina plays the self-sacrifice with that impassioned determination to make up for his mistakes really puts it over the top and lands him on my list. Number 42, Chloe Grace Moretz as Hit Girl in Kick-Ass. Moretz's breakout role as Minnie McCready was unlike anything I'd seen, either in a superhero movie or for a little girl on the big screen, period. She brought so much attitude to the part and a world weariness well beyond her years. It's hard not to wonder what in her own experience or inside herself she was tapping into. She's typically cute, and she creates a brilliant juxtaposition between that and the violence. I believe she was really raised by Big Daddy to do the things she does, but not totally lose her childhood, and her affinity for fighting and weapons is both hilarious and kind of disturbing. I'm never comfortable laughing at her brutality, but I can't help myself. And she brings a genuine innocence and affection for her father that makes that easier. She's not a soulless perversion of innocent youth, she's a complex child in a complex situation. So even if I don't condone the way she's raised, it's easy to put myself in her shoes and appreciate things from her perspective. Her chemistry with Nicolas Cage is palpable, and it's one of the most sincere father-daughter relationships I've seen on screen. And incredible that Moretz was talented enough to pull it off at just nine years old. Number 41, Tom Hardy as Bane in The Dark Knight Rises. Really, Cap? I hear some of you saying. After your notorious dislike for The Dark Knight Rises, Bane is on your top 50 performances list? Of course! Yes, the voice is silly, Yes, Bane's motivations and ideology are confusing. Yes, he's easy to make fun of. But what Hardy did with that role was completely original. It's unlike anything I'd ever seen and couldn't stop thinking about it for months and years after the fact. Some of that is because it was fun to lampoon, but the farther I've gotten away from it, the more I've come to find out it's one of the things about that movie I really do like. That positive upswing Hardy puts at the ends of phrases and that jovial, almost sing-songy tone reflects his M.O., false hope. He sounds like he doesn't have a care in the world, and like everything is great while he breaks your back, or snaps your neck, or threatens your city with an elaborate no-man's-land revolution. Behind that mask that he had to put on before anyone cared about him, which might be true of Hardy himself, he's insanely expressive with his eyes. There's so much power and passion in everything he does, and yes, he's wonderfully imposing and menacing, the character isn't as interesting as I thought he was at the beginning, but Hardy is, and he plays a really threatening anti-Batman. The backbreak scene is, especially out of context, one of the most captivating action scenes in a superhero film. It's a weak ending to my favorite franchise, but I'll admit it, I do return to Rises for Bane. Number 40, Terrence Stamp as General Zod in Superman 2. General Zod is one of my favorite Superman villains, all thanks to Stamp's pompous and arrogant performance. Like Bane, he's another truly imposing presence that becomes the most fun thing in the whole film. I love it when I'm grinning ear to ear at a bad guy and even laughing at him sometimes, but it's somehow never taking away from the threat. Stamp's performance is simultaneously wonderfully dramatic and comedic. He's completely no nonsense, claiming the earth for himself just because he has the power to and believes he's entitled to rule it. But he doesn't understand the planet Houston as he first thinks it's called, and the movie gets a lot of comedy mileage from his confusion. I noticed on another watch years after I reviewed Superman 2 that there's a scene in the small town he occupies where he's just standing in the background totally bewildered by pie. What is it? What's it for? Both villains are played for comedic beats here and there, but Zod is, of course, a lot more subtle than Lax, and he's funny because he has no sense of humor. He's also terrifying because he has no sense of empathy. He's the first major God-King villain in superhero movies, and a lot of these kinds of bad guys are looking to stamp as a template. Number 39, Michael Caine as Alfred in Batman Begins. It was difficult to decide which performance to single out Kane for, but I'm gonna pick Batman Begins because that's where Kane establishes his warm but challenging father figure dynamic with Christian Bale, and more of my favorite moments with him are in that film. Kane is certainly doing Michael Kane. It's one of those performances that comes naturally from just picking the right guy. If Michael Kane acts like himself, but you call him Alfred and you put him in a Batman movie, he's Alfred. He does the posh and sophisticated English butler thing, but he gets to play a lot of layers inside of that. Kane plays Alfred as a good friend before he's a good ally. He's encouraging and doesn't give up on his friend until Rises, in a turn I still go back and forth on, but he doesn't like what Bruce does to himself, and especially the reputation of his family name, even if he does understand why Bruce has to be Batman. Alfred's brass tacks, put-things-back-into-perspective speeches are fantastic, and Kane always grabs my attention and makes me think right along with Bruce. His tender moments with Bruce are good, but it's those firm shape-up moments that put him right over the top for me. I particularly love the This House speech toward the beginning, when Alfred tells Bruce why his father's house is so important to him and why it's more than a mausoleum. And the Those Are Bruce Wayne's Guests speech in the third act, which I suppose is very related to the first, when he pleads with Bruce not to destroy his family name. Kane is great at telling us everything we need to know about what he's feeling with an expression, too, like when he picks up Batman off the street after he's been poisoned with fear gas and set on fire and he's absolutely mortified, like a parent who's about to lose his child. He also creates a lot of dry levity for the piece. Goff's Alfred did that too, but Kane serves more as a sounding board here, so there are more opportunities for banter and sarcasm. Number 38, Gene Hackman as Lex Luthor in Superman. Hackman is the original big-screen bad guy for a superhero epic, and while his Lex predates the more psychologically complex corporate tycoon, his performance is effective because he's Superman's opposite in every way. Hackman's Lex is self-aggrandizing, scheming, and ruthless. He's also constantly spouting snide witticisms, and Hackman strikes the perfect balance between uncaring sociopath and comic relief. He does what Stamp does with Zod, except he's clever on purpose and he's playing chess, not, um, I don't know, whack-a-mole, hungry-hungry hippos. Hackman's comedic timing is unmatched, and I've always loved the way he goes toe-to-toe with Superman, who could kill him with a glance but is limited by his principles and isn't remotely intimidated. Hackman isn't my favorite Lex, but he was the right one for this era and for Christopher Reeve. He's like a 60s Batman villain if that show suddenly became a serious epic. My number 37 is Scarlett Johansson as Black Widow in Captain America, The Winter Soldier. I like Johansson's mysterious and manipulative portrayal of Natasha Romanoff in each Marvel movie okay, but she stands out for me in The Winter Soldier because of her playful yet melancholy behavior toward Captain America. This is another how much of what I love is in the script situation, but I really like how Winter Soldier addresses the inconsistency in her performances between movies. She doesn't seem precisely like the same person from Iron Man 2 to Avengers, to this film, and if that's not intentional until now, it's a pretty great way to mask it. Natasha is different with whoever she's with, like an empathic metamorph, and she never allows herself a definitive persona or a rigid ideology like Steve Rogers does because she thinks it makes her vulnerable. This is her defense mechanism. Playing against her character's opposite in so many ways, Johansson finds a real voice for her character here. She plays it a little seductive with Evans, and I think that's because she knows they're romantically incompatible, and it's fun to tease him a little. But neither she or the story is teasing the audience. I never expected to go in a romantic direction, and she doesn't lose sympathy with me for messing with him because it doesn't feel mean-spirited. She genuinely wants to give Steve a new perspective on things and wants to see him happy. Johansson also plays the undercover reveal in the third act with great dramatic flair and her attempted sacrifice feels sincere and earned. Johansson is apparently finally going to get her own Marvel movie soon, but she doesn't waste the opportunity in Winter Soldier to play great material like this might be the closest thing we'll get to a solo Black Widow movie. Number 36, Emma Stone as Gwen Stacy in The Amazing Spider-Man. Stone plays one of the most likable and believable female love interests in superhero movies. Say what you want about the action, recycled villain plot, and contrivances to get Peter in the Spider-Man suit. The romance and relationship drama is what director Mark Webb nails, and he couldn't have done it without the acting caliber of someone like Emma Stone. I like her fine in the sequel, but I'm picking this movie because she's a little bit overwritten there, and I like the relationship stuff more here. I fall in love with her right along with Peter. She's self-assured, brazen, and challenging, but she's also understanding and has some emotional maturity, but not so much that I don't buy she's in high school and still has some things to learn. Maybe she's a little too perfect for some people's taste, but Stone plays in over her head well, establishing the character flaw that will, spoiler alert, get Gwen killed in the sequel. I believe her as the daughter of a cop and that that's part of her attraction to Peter, Stone gives Gwen a wonderful sense of humor and refreshing optimism, which, of course, is designed to make her inevitable death that much more crushing, and she's never taking herself too seriously. I like Andrew Garfield, but Emma Stone elevates his performance and the material, and that's why she makes my list. 35. Gary Oldman as Jim Gordon in The Dark Knight. Goldman proves his versatility as an actor, playing against type and disappearing in the role of a young lieutenant and then commissioner James Gordon. Like with Michael Caine, it was difficult to decide which performance to go with. In Batman Begins, Oldman creates this inspired take on the character in the first place, and is wonderfully idealistic but conflicted, wet behind the ears, and so warm with the young Bruce Wayne after his parents are murdered. But I'm going to put him on the list specifically for The Dark Knight, where I'm so enraptured by his performance, so desperate to see his alliance with Dent and Batman succeed, that I'm devastated by his fake death, legitimately unsure on a first viewing if he was really dead or not. He remains endearing but imperfect as he compromises his principles for the sake he feels of necessity in working with corrupt cops and indirectly helping to turn Dent, the White Knight, into a monster. The turmoil Oldman radiates in the hospital room when Harvey forces him to say Two-Face seeps through the movie screen and the decimation of their friendship is crushing. His pleading to Harvey to punish him rather than his son toward the end is one of the most tense and gut-wrenching moments I've experienced in a theater, and really puts Oldman over the top. There's a lot of reinvention in the Nolan movies, but Oldman embodies exactly what Gordon was in the comics for me, and it's hard to imagine anybody topping him. 34. Letitia Wright as Shuri in Black Panther Wright made me totally fall in love with a character I had never heard of, and I might be becoming more of a fan of her even than Black Panther. To dismiss her as just comic relief or just T'Challa's cue would be disingenuous. She represents the balance between tradition and innovation and makes a great argument for technological progress in a time filled with cautionary dystopian movies about how technology will destroy us. And I love that as a metaphor for improving government systems. Just because something works doesn't mean it can't be improved. I love Wright's wide-eyed passion for discovery and Shuri's total lack of fear about the future. And Wright splashes the film with optimism and a free-spirited energy it would be sorely lacking without. I laugh a lot at her banter with her brother, and her comic timing and delivery is fantastic. I love her independent attitude and her sarcasm. She seems to be the big breakout supporting character from Black Panther, and she deserves it. There's been talk about a Women of Wakanda movie, and if that happens, especially if she serves as a stint as the Black Panther like she does in the comics, I will be over the moon. Number 33, J.K. Simmons as J. Jonah Jameson in the first Spider-Man movie. Simmons becomes the quintessential curmudgeon in Spider-Man, and it's such a joy to watch him completely commit to such an over-the-top, blatantly narcissistic and spiteful role. Just like in the comics, because Simmons' performance is like watching that character just walk right off the page, Jameson hates our hero, unapologetically and underhandedly does whatever he can to smear his name, evidence or not, and yet it's impossible to hate him Because he's just so much fun. He's an unknowing caricature. Such a cartoon, I actually believe the performance. A guy who's so out of touch and so in love with the sound of his own voice, he doesn't realize how ridiculous and fake he is. Kind of protests too much. I'm putting him on the list specifically for his freshman performance. In initially crafting the character, but he's consistently great for the same reasons throughout the trilogy. Though the writing gets too silly, even for him, by three We rarely see the real, compassionate Jameson underneath the ruthless, fire-anyone-in-a-second exterior, but you can tell he's in there somewhere. Simmons takes that gift and uses it to full dramatic and blood-curdling effect in Whiplash. Retroactively, Jameson watches almost like a parody of the mentor he plays there. Number 32, Anthony Mackie as Sam Wilson and the Falcon in Captain America, The Winter Soldier. Falcon is another character I knew nothing about before the Marvel movies and now can't imagine the world without, though unlike Shuri, I'd at least heard of him. Mackie brings a near Reeve level amount of compassion and heart to Sam Wilson, a man who lives Captain America's philosophy every day and refuses to be changed by a cynical world, no matter how hard it is. He's not just a clone of Steve Rogers, he has a totally different background and has gone through different hardships, but like Steve, appreciates what he has now because he knows what it's like to be vulnerable. He's the personification of Steve's hope for the future in a modern man, proof that good, selfless people still exist. And Mackie plays it so effortlessly, it feels like the Rousseau's just found a guy who's like that and he doesn't have to act. I mean, I don't know Mackie personally, of course, and I know he's just playing a character, but he makes me want to be his best friend, along with Steve, in the same way Emma Stone makes me fall in love with Gwen, along with Peter. Mackie adds some much-needed, grounded optimism to a bleak situation, and successfully creates a believably light-hearted character who provides a lot of levity in later movies, in a really heavy and dead serious movie here. And after this, I get giddy every time he's on screen. Probably wouldn't be on most people's list, but I would be lying if I left him off mine. Number 31, Brian Cox as William Stryker in X2. Stryker is my absolute favorite of the movie X-Men villains. Not necessarily the best performance of those, but he has to go on the list because I find him fascinating and captivating, and he's a big reason for my love of X2. Cox plays damaged, tortured, and unhinged extremely well. In Cox's performance, I see a potentially once good man who, like Magneto, has been broken by the loss of his wife and who needs something to blame. He's beyond redemption by the time we get to him in this movie, but we understand how he got there. In later movies, he's played too much like a stiff, thoughtless, typical military baddie who's a natural bigot. But Cox's striker is eviscerated by experience. He sees mutation as a disease because it destroyed his life, even if he might have been racist towards mutants before that. Who knows? I love the juxtaposition of his polished southern charm and his total coldness with the mutants he mutilates and controls. He's deliciously duplicitous and mysterious, the face of Wolverine's missing past, who offers him answers and acts almost like a father who's separated from his son but really just sees Logan as his first successful experiment, the embodiment of his accomplishment. Apparently, Cox really wanted to be in Days of Future Past with de-aging CGI. Probably wouldn't have looked great, but I kind of wish he had been. When Ottman's X2 score comes in as Logan sees him and starts to lose his time link, I'm like, sorry, I just don't buy that's the same guy, even that young. Cox gives an original, distinct, and disturbing performance. Number 30, Ian McKellen as Magneto in X-Men. Doc Ock is one of the first truly sympathetic superhero movie villains, but that trend really starts, I think, with Magneto. And he's certainly the first major villain who doesn't see himself as the bad guy at all. McKellen is brilliant throughout but I'm giving him the 30th spot for his first performance specifically. The character gets even more interesting for me, contrasted with Stryker in X2, but McKellen really steals the show in the first movie, using his Shakespearean stage chomps to legitimize a comic book representation of the Malcolm X ideology. His we-must-subjugate-our-oppressors-before-they-subjugate-us philosophy is a deeply flawed but understandable human being I can't help but sympathize with. McKellen has a brilliant command of the screen and gives a powerful but understated performance. He just doesn't have to do a lot to get my attention. He doesn't speechify constantly, and that's a smart move. I can read so much turmoil, sorrow, and rage in his face. I love his condescension and his arrogance. The denial he plays that what he's really after is revenge. I love the way he and Patrick Stewart as Xavier challenge each other and how much I believe in their sordid relationship. And this might seem like an odd point, but he's one of the most convincing actors I've seen at making me buy he's making stuff move around with his mind. You'll believe a man is magnetic. Number 29, James Spader as Ultron in Age of Ultron. Rarely have I seen a CG character that, even though I know I'm looking at a special effect, the performance shines through so well, I almost have to remind myself I'm looking at a mocap performance, especially not one done by Andy Serkis. Spader manages to give Ultron terror, comedy, and pathos, and a nuanced effort that I think few actors could pull off. I don't think a lot of actors would even understand the role enough to play it. He's a brand new life form with the collective knowledge of the internet that has Tony Stark's ego and ambition and Jarvis's programming. So he has to be a completely new creature with his own personality and sensibilities and feelings, but we also have to see those other two characters in him. And he has to be scary and foreboding, but also sympathetic to a degree. And we have to buy that he got like this in about 12 seconds, which not everybody does, But I buy it, and Spader's performance has a lot to do with that. He plays Ultron like a child who thinks he knows everything, and who thinks his fresh perspective against people caught up in their own trivial lives gives him a better read on the world. Spader is wonderfully flippant and nonchalant as he treats human beings like easily breakable toys, and I love his frustration at those toys for being too limiting and for all the things he doesn't like about himself that he sees in them. He delivers pages and pages of dialogue with a captivating egotism that's sometimes funny, haunting, or a little of both. It's memorable almost like Bane, except a little less prone to parody. Number 28, Wesley Snipes as Blade in Blade. Snipes bleeds cool. That's it. That's why he makes the list. He seems totally emotionless and heartless, nothing seems to break his steel exterior, but his heroic actions say otherwise. Snipes has complete control of the screen when he's on it. I love his constant, no-nonsense, deadpan presence in action and in dialogue, and he manages to convey a lot of emotion through his eyes, as the rest of his face refuses to let anyone in. Tragedy and pathos are once again the words of the day. You can see what really drives him, as he attempts to be impenetrable, and he's endearing because he can't help but let his humanity bleed through. Bladey is Snipes' Superman. He was born to play it, and he's a lot of why this generally unknown character became so popular. He's a model for dark heroes and anti-heroes after him. The most impressive thing about him is how serious and stolid he plays it, but somehow he's a ton of fun to watch because Snipes understands how to let the audience know that he knows he's in a comic book even while his character doesn't. Number 27, Ben Affleck as Bruce Wayne and Batman in Batman v Superman. BVS is a fascinating disaster. So much about it is counterintuitive, or laughable, or eyebrow-raising, or just plain weird. If I were still using stills, you'd be looking at a picture of Granny's peach tea right now. What? But while the casting of Ben Affleck might have initially seemed like one of those counterintuitive things, it was absolutely not the problem. Affleck does the best he can with a hackneyed script and an inconsistent character, and elevates the material as best he can, making me desperate to see him star in that solo film he almost directed, and which now likely won't include him at all. Yeah we got a bafflingly bad movie with a proven screenwriter and director playing Batman who isn't getting to make the movie he wrote. It's... it's... PARADOXICAL! Affleck is great at world-weary and fighting not to come apart at the seams. He's convincing both in and out of the bat Suit, and he feels like, finally, a traditional, classic, off-the-page Batman. Or at least, like, that's what he was before he was so beaten down by years of painful crime-fighting and loss, presumably culminating in the death of a Robin at the hands of the Joker. Never mind the details yet, those will come later! Oh, Justice League kind of flopped, so, no, no they won't. He's got a perfect, sometimes combative rapport with Jeremy Irons, his Alfred, who is also excellent and who I'm sure some listeners will be disappointed to find is not on this list. Just because I don't spend enough time with him for his performance to affect me as much as some of the others on this list, and I've only got 50 spots. Affleck is not, for me, the best or even the second best Batman. Again, another thing I know a lot of people are not going to agree with me on. But that may only be because he's not given the chance to play better material. He absolutely had a shot at being the best. Now that he's been burned in tights in two different roles, I imagine he wishes he never put them on at all. Number 26, Paul Bettany as Vision in Avengers Age of Ultron. Vision is one of the most impressive comic characters brought to screen, and an incredible performance, because he has so little screen time, but he completely comes alive and he's totally enrapturing. Vision easily could have just been a mouthpiece for an idea, the counter to Ultron's argument that humanity doesn't deserve to continue because it refuses to be better and is therefore doomed. But he's wonderfully complex for what little time he has on screen, especially considering he was, as he says, born yesterday. Bettany plays him as thoughtful, curious, and introspective, delivering dialogue in a calm, but confident, and matter-of-fact way that would be as creepy as Ultron were he on the wrong side. It's fantastic that Jarvis' voice actor was chosen to play his flesh-and-blood counterpart. The AI was already a fan-favorite aspect of the Iron Man films, and it feels like a massive payoff to put a face to the name and a little surreal to see Jarvis as a thinking and feeling person, who is more than a robot, but not human either. I've continued to love him beyond Age of Ultron, but the speech he delivers to Ultron at the end about how humans are doomed but the point of life isn't about how long we live is one of the best in superhero movie history. A thing isn't beautiful because it lasts. And so, unfortunately, all things must eventually end, and although it sometimes probably feels like a superhero rewind never will, that time has come for this one, but don't worry! It's not time for the giant energy beam in the sky to signal the final act yet. That'll come next time, when I count down my remaining top 25 performances in superhero movies. Based on what's here, I imagine you can guess at least a few of them. Thanks a lot for listening, folks. Sure hope you enjoyed it. I'll have the second part of this list up very soon. And in the meantime, if you'd like to support Superhero Rewind and Geekfolution at large, go to patreon.com slash for just $2 a month. You get three-day early access to episodes of Superhero Rewind, also Morphin Mania, and a whole bunch of other fantastic perks at just that $2 tier. We've got higher tiers with even cooler perks, and at the $10 tier, you can become a Patreon producer, and I'd like to thank all of our producers right now. We've got quite a few to list at the moment. You guys are wonderful. Dylan Musciello, Jackson Rasco, Nick Mana, Eamon Singleton, Cletus Winslow, Remy LeBlanc, Derek Jacob, The Day Ghost, Michael Gulick, Magpie's Nest Productions, Kareem Roberts, Lot 10 Underground, Michael Mark Micheletti, Carl Maxi, Dimitri J, John Johnson, Jacob Schneider, Nathan Hanford, Aram Zangana, Sartaj Govind Singh, Joey Crouch, Neil McCalmont, Ethan, Guidi, Caleb, Malik Myers, Lone Wolf Jedi of Gotham, Chewbacca's Lover, David Crabtree, Simeon Scott. Justin Hayes, Marie Flowers, Ian McKee, Todd Schmuck, and Jeffrey Patron. Thanks, of course, also to all of our other patrons and to everybody who is just watching. Thanks for supporting us in any way you choose to do that. We sure appreciate it. And I will see you again very soon. I'm Captain Logan, and thanks again for listening. Bye.